Mark. Smoking Joe, how are you? I am very well. I guess we talked about that in, in yeah. a recent podcast, didn't we? Yeah. It's been on my mind. So what's your smoke point? What gets you going? That reminds me of my favorite fridge magnet, actually. You can smoke in here, but you better be on fire. <laughs> so, yeah. Do you, is that your question for today? That's my question. I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm going to try and throw you a question every episode. It feels like otherwise we're just going to be Canadians and talk about the weather. The weather. Well, the. Um... No, don't, I, that wasn't an invitation to talk about the weather. <laughs> that was like, we're trying to avoid that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's been on my mind down here in New Brunswick, I can tell you. Well, I live down here in the banana belt of Canada. So. It's been pretty nice winter so far. Now, now we're talking about the weather. Okay, let's introduce John, please. <laughs> okay, okay. Today, we are welcoming my old friend and teacher, John Corcelli. Welcome. Thank you, Joe. Nice to be with you here today. Yes. I hope I'm sounding good, too. Well, you've always sounded good. I still have the radio chops. I haven't done any radio work in a long time, but I still have a... Uh, a few radio chops. Left. Well, in fact, and we're going to invite you to talk a little bit about uh, your experience and what sort of creative things that you've done. But the one thing I do remember is you doing uh, radio shows and series about uh, musical artists such as, well, you did uh, an episode on The Big Pink, I remember. Oh, yes. The, the, the album, The Big Pink by the band. Yeah, I did that, uh, co-produced that with Kevin Courier back in 2007, I think it was. He and I wanted to do a short series based on a series of, I came up with the idea from a series of books that was published a few years ago that still exists called 33 and a third. And these were small print books about, you know, five by five by four or something like that. And all they did was discuss the albums. And it's a nice series. Kevin wrote one on uh, Trout Mask Replica uh, by Captain Beefheart. And I said, you know, we should do a radio version of this. The first one we did was one of the books. And it was music from Big Pink. Yeah. And we went into that and we decided, okay, how can we do a special one hour on this album? Why it was important, uh, play some tracks from it, and then interview some of the players. So we, we couldn't get Robbie Robertson, unfortunately, and we couldn't get uh, Levon Helm, who was still alive. But we did get John Simon, who produced the thing, and to talk about it. And we reached out to him and he was really glowing about talking about a record that came out in 1968. And um, that was one of the series. Yeah, we called it RPM. Yeah. Important Canadian albums. <laughs> All of which is by way of saying that you are a you are a broadcaster and you are a writer. Yes. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of breaking our rule, which is that uh, normally we ask our guests to explain a bit about themselves. But in, in your case, I know so much about you that <laughs> I don't know anything about any of our other guests, nor do I care. But you... <laughs> <laughs> that's not true people he's he does care yeah, a little bit yes yeah <laughs> yeah but you've uh so i mean your latest claim to fame is uh is a book that just came out about uh george carlin which i just finished reading actually and i think it's a terrific book i highly recommend it thank you so much yeah it's called outside looking in the uh seriously funny life and work of george carlin is there anything else you want to say about your life and work before we get into what it is that we're talking about today? I think you should still be able to uh, pitch yourself to everyone. Absolutely. <laughs> because that's the idea. Pitch yourself. Who are you? Why do you matter? Yeah, it's yeah. your own pitch. You get to frame your own reality. Why do I matter? Frame my own reality. Yeah. Wow, that's a frame my own reality. That's a good that's a good one. I don't like to brag about myself, but I will say this. I'm originally from uh, uh, Scarborough, Ontario. I was born and raised in Toronto. I still live and work here. 
And I went to uh, Toronto Metropolitan University. That's the new name, but it was called Ryerson University back in uh, starting in 1980 because in the in actually it was it was Polytechnical, wasn't it? Ryerson Polytechnical. Yeah, it was Polytechnical Institute. Yeah. Institute. Yeah, when we were there, they just can't settle on a name. No, and this one will do them for a short time. The whole key of it was my love of music growing up, and I used to listen to radio as a kid, and I used to listen to Top 40 radio. And I would listen to the DJs and, uh, and, 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 and enjoy how much fun they had playing records for people and talking and stuff like that. And I thought, oh, man, this is perfect. I can go on the air and talk about music and play music that I like and, and the rest will be history. That was particularly true in the 70s when I discovered FM radio and its heyday, especially Chum FM here in Toronto with people like David Pritchard. Some people may remember David Pritchard or Tim Thomas and all of these great announcers who played music, but they they had a kind of a, a personality about them that wasn't hard sell or anything like that. It was like, I'm going to just go on a journey through music and I'm going to take you on this ride. And when I discovered that I, that I wanted to do that, I found out that Ryerson Polytechnical Institute, as it was called back in the day, had uh, a broadcasting program. And in fact, that broadcasting program, a radio program, if you will, started in when, when the Institute started, I think in 1953, if memory serves. And they would, for three years, you get a Bachelor of Applied Arts degree studying radio and television and camera work and all of the things you needed to learn to, to, to work in this business, in the media business. This was pre-digital years, pre-digital, all analog in those days. And it took me four or five tries to get into the course. I was turned down like four times or three times and then accepted on my fourth attempt to get into the course because they were fussy about who they were taking. Of course, Joe, I think you got in immediately. Did you not when you applied? Which completely negates the idea that they were fussy about who they were taking. I think there was some other criteria. Well, I came to the conclusion that they took three or four different types of people, people who were really good at public speaking, people who may have uh, worked at a cable TV station for a while. And, And the third one was completely green. Because you would take somebody who was completely green, then the, the, the institute could say, wow, look what we've done with this person. We've taken someone completely green. We've made them something through all of our courses and everything, something that was a, a permanent journalist or a broadcaster, whatever the case may be. Maybe there was a PEI quota. Maybe there was a PEI quota. There <laughs> might have been. There might have been. Yeah. Well, I was the cable TV guy that you mentioned because ah. I, I had worked in private radio and cable TV before I applied. So... Right. So that that gave you a bit of an edge. Well, what I did was I got into a different course at Ryerson and I did the campus radio station there called CKLN. It no longer exists. Uh, They lost their license a few years ago and worked down there on the radio station because I was advised uh, that, John, you should join the radio station. And I'll tell you what, if you hang in there and you'll learn a bit of a few things, you apply again, you'll get in. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So and then you went on to become, I should explain to our listeners, because yes. I referred to you as my teacher yes. <clears throat> earlier. Yes. After you graduated, you became what was called a lab audio lab technician. And uh, you taught me audio at Ryerson. Yes. As a teaching assistant. And yeah. You're, you're, when I graduated in 1984, yeah, I, I was blessed with a great job. One of the best jobs I've ever had in uh, to start in 84, 85. And you came in in 1984, right? What was your first year at Ryerson? I graduated class of 87. So 87. So 84 is when you came in because it's three years. Yeah. And yeah, you were basically a a lab technician or a a teaching assistant 
And it was a great way to, to get to know uh, the new students coming in, a really good opportunity to apply what I had just spent three years learning yeah, and to get people introduced to how the equipment worked and things like that in the studios. We had a, some really primitive equipment in those days. A lot of it was imported from the CBC, CBC radio, what they would replace them. They'd come in with it and they weren't even faders. They're those damned attenuators. Oh, the rotary pots. Yeah. That you had to turn <laughs> the rotary pots that, that were in increments of five DB each. So you could never really do a real fade. Yeah. You know, they were really, really annoying, but we learned how to use them and reel to reel machines and uh, turntables. And well, and if there's any quality to this podcast, to the audio quality of this podcast whatsoever, it's all thanks to you, John. Oh, low those many years ago. Oh, oh, God bless you. Now that's that's very kind. I, I I do know, and this is important for 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 the listener to understand, is that after you graduated, Joe, you actually got that job. Yes, I did. I became a lab assistant. Yeah, you became I, a lab assistant when you when you finished in eighty seven. A labby as a labby yeah. as we used to in 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 radio. Right? Was it the radio gig? Yeah, I was in the radio side. Yeah. Anyway, so there's your background for me, and so here we are. In the year 2023, and uh, people may ask, uh, you know, John, well, 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 what did all of that bring you up until now? Well, I'm no longer working in media, so there's that. But uh, one of the, the best experiences is meeting people like Joe and a whole lot of other colleagues that I consider friends. And that it laid the foundation for what make it, what being a good communicator was. And in fact, we're going to talk today about um, George Carlin because uh, I'm going commercial with a new book and that, and we're going to talk about Occupation Fool. Well, that was one of my records that I, I loved then and when I was growing up, and we'll get into that. To get to this far, to actually write two books and stuff like that, there's something I never would have dreamed of there in those days. But it was, it all has, I think it all has to do with maturing and having good years and listening to people and writing. And so writing documentaries or writing for radio and all that kind of stuff, it all relates to what you're doing and what we're doing now. And I'm happy to be here. I'm really happy that you're going to do this show. This is great. Well, we're all out of time. So thanks for uh, being on the show, John. Um, <laughs> you cruel no. bastard. You cruel, cruel bastard. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, it's one of my life's ambitions yeah. to try to be kinder. That, that's not working out. <laughs> so much for resolutions this year. I actually have a burning question for John, though, about about the video because I did I did video oh. as my specialty in in uh, journalism school, even though I never worked in TV. Yeah. How wide was the tape? Oh, well, two inches, two inch videotape. Yeah, oh it was two inches wide, and I <laughs> I didn't insane. really want to go into television when I. I wanted to do radio full time. That was that was my baby. Yeah, yeah. But we did have to handle these massive two inch reels of tape. <laughs> and went later on, I, I worked at at the CBC in libraries and archives. And of course, we heard horror stories of what it was like during those expensive years with two inch videotape, where we can't afford to buy anymore. So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to bulk erase the tape with a show on it. Yeah, yeah, it's what happened to Spike Milligan's show. Yes, it happened a lot oh. um, with a lot of shows that, um, like the Friendly Giant and some of the fifteen-minute shows. Yeah, tragedy. And it certainly happened an awful lot in America. There's a lot of shows, uh, a lot of Tonight shows with Johnny Carson that were erased. Wow. 
we handled, um, yeah, the two inch videotape, as you know, and then there was the famous three quarter inch. It, it came down in size and then it got into, uh, yeah, that's what, that's when I entered the, is that what you yeah. worked on three yeah, quarter so inch? I was, and those, I was, man, I was 91, 92 and yeah, ah. it was, it was, and you yeah. talked about, uh, it's just amazing how many of these programs are similar because what you had in terms of, you know, a recent grad then staying on to, we had the same thing. We called them the shepherd. And the year that I went to jur- oh. journalism school, our shepherd was Adrian Arsenault. No. Seriously. Wow. <laughs> so every time I see her, it blows my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, now yeah. she's heading the national. I know. It's amazing know. Where people, how far people come. You know, yeah. she's traveled the world doing stories and now she's. Oh, and she's fabulous. You know, not very far away. Not yeah. very far away from where I'm sitting now. Yeah. And where yeah. we could still go. There's still hope for us, maybe. What? To the host of national? Or something, something of value. I don't know. <laughs> oh, we're doing something of, of real value here, here and now. Yeah. So George right. Carlin. Yes. Yes. I, I want to. So what's the what's the album you want to talk about? It's a specific album, right? Uh, yeah. The, the 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 album specifically is Occupation Fool, and it's his fourth record on uh, the Little David label, which was started by uh, Flip Wilson. If anybody remembers Flip Wilson, he started his own record label in uh, 1970 or so and signed George Carlin to it. And he cut five records for them. And what's really critically important, I think, not necessarily about this album as as much as many of the the comedy albums that came out, this is in 1974. And uh, as a result, we don't have an appreciation for the LP or the comedy LP in the same way as we did then. And and I think what's remarkable on one level is that this record, along with his, his, his masterwork really for a lot of people's class clown mm-hmm. and his first album on, on little day was called FM and AM, which won a Grammy award. And is the fact that these albums placed in the billboard 200. Wow. Yeah. Of, of the all time bestsellers of, of albums. So he was actually charting successfully against music records. Elton John, the Rolling Stones, who was ever hot at the time. Eagles had just debuted during these years. Uh, Fleetwood Mac, uh, pop artists like that. And Led Zeppelin, you know, and all of them and all these big bands, Paul McCartney and Wings is another one. John Denver, who sold a lot of records, artists like that. And it's remarkable to think of a spoken word album, which is, you know, about 40 minutes long, charting on the Billboard 200 like he does. But we listened to those those comedy albums, didn't we? And those of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s, you know, Cheech and Chong, for example. Yeah. Do you still here, man? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> for, we used to play the Cheech and Chong records all the time. A friend of mine across yeah. the street had one. And we used to, basketball Jones, you know, I still remember listening yeah. to his room, basketball Jones, but these were successful records. The other guy, you know, at the time, of course, who had uh, really successful records, of course, was Bill Cosby, who had this string of like six or seven albums, but to, to understand or to appreciate spoken word against all of the other music records there, I think is a remarkable feat that, that isn't really discussed very often now. Where am I leading with all of this? I don't know. We are uh, we're talking about auction, occupation fool and why it is my favorite. I guess are we talking about works of art here? Do we call them pieces of art? Or well, we just what do you guys want? How do you? I, I think for this? us, like I, what I'm most interested in is like what really inspired you about that that piece of art? Like what really kind of 
spoke to you. So it's 1974. I don't know mm-hmm. how old you were then, but you know, probably uh, 16. 16. Okay. So mm-hmm. a very impressionable age, uh, I would say. And what did this do to the 16 year old John's brain? Oh, that's a good question. I, I, it's, it's, it's somehow, hmm. I, I felt that with a lot of his records and particularly this one, um, that it spoke to me. And the reason I feel that way is because even though it's a re- live recording in front of an audience of some 3000 or so, which was his biggest audience at the time, George was a DJ and I didn't know that at the time he spent his early years as a, as a disc jockey down in Texas. And then later on in Shreveport, Louisiana, and then in, in uh, new England. And what is remarkable about this particular record is that even though, and all of his records really, but in this particular one, even though he is in front of an audience of 3,000 or so, I feel this connection that he's only speaking to me. Hmm. And only a DJ or a former DJ, which is why I listen to radio anyway, it's the medium of the imagination. And that right. sounds like a cliche, but it's not. If you in the days you'd put on headphones like we're wearing today, and you'd sort of tune into what was going on and, and just tripping on in, his, in, in, in the world of music and what the announcer was doing, and it was fun. But he was only addressing me. It wasn't a, a wide audience that way. So that one-to-one relationship with, with jockeys was personal. And so it is with George Carlin and Occupation Fool. It's personal. He comes out and he's a little late when he when he when he arrives. He says, you know, he's welcome to my job, you know. And it's like, yeah, we get it. And says, I, you know, he says, I'm just going to hang around for a few minutes. I'm not going to start right away. It's like going to work. First twenty minutes is mine, man. You know, even though you show up on time and you spend the first twenty minutes at your job looking out the window or grabbing a coffee or something like that. And it's already he welcomes you into his world. And this particular album, what I really like about it more specifically is the fact that he talks about his life growing up in New York. Mm. In my book, I talk about the importance of New York City in his upbringing and what he learned from growing up in New York as kind of a wild and crazy kid with so many different street voices he does here and what it was like to go to high school singing in the corridor and he recreates all of that. And his love of, of voices and, and, and miming the voices and attitudes of, of, uh, of uh, black people from Harlem or some of the college kids at Columbia University, which was a block away. And then some of the, the Irish uh, cop sounds from a generation and the Italians and, and uh, the Puerto Ricans. And he could, he could mimic these voices perfectly. So it was a very entertaining record. It still is. And, of course, he also talks about um, the seven words you can't see on television. But on this particular track, there's an extended version where he adds another three. So you're getting three <laughs> bonus words. Very important for a 16-year-old John, I'm assuming. Really, absolutely. You want to you hear these. And, wh- and what he does when he talks about all these words and he uses all of the four-letter words is that he liberates them. And this is a critical moment in his life and in his career, as I discovered in his book that he discovered later on his own is this, uh, this kind of poetry is finding this is during his era. The book just to, just to back, uh, back up a little bit is, is Joe knows. And as anyone who has read it yet, and I hope everyone does is that I, I, I strategically tell his story as, is, is an evolution in style from class clown to jester 
to poet, and then later on in his later life to philosopher. And there's always a, there's a section of his life, you know, where you can connect. The later stuff has been very, very popular on uh, TikTok. His stuff is all over YouTube, as you know, from his HBO specials. So this particular album spoke to me because of the one-on-one relationship. And I finally got around to answering your question, Mark. Great job. Thank you. Speaking of the like the way you laid out the evolution in your book, I I, I did a, I appreciate how well constructed your book was. It was an eminently readable book. This is the uh, the flattering portion of, of this podcast. <laughs> it was it was a strikingly well written book, I thought, and well constructed. I read it in in two or three days in every you know possible stolen moment. I read like a novel in that way. Oh. Really? Oh, that's very high praise. That's very high praise. Uh, I, not, yeah, nine, nonfiction that reads like a novel, that's wow. that's really hard to achieve. That is hard to achieve, and I wasn't necessarily trying to achieve that. I did want to – I appreciate that, Joe. The, the notion I came up with regarding the arc of his career, I, I, when you're writing, and you guys both know this, is that you, sometimes your best writing is when you're out walking. When you're out daydreaming, and I would take, especially during COVID, this was written during COVID. So I was, uh, I, I could only do one thing, and that was to go out for long walks, which, is, which I do every day. And I was walking along, and I had, at this point, started the book. This was in the spring of uh, 2021. And, um, and I had a sense of the, 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 the story and what I wanted to say, in other words, the component parts, but I didn't have any thing that could fuse the component parts together. And as I was walking along one time, you thought, I thought to myself, all I have to do is listen to the man himself, because this is the way he sort of spoke about his own work and his own raison d'etre as an artist. And I simply just broke it down for him because he did re- appreciate the, the notion of being in, in what he called the vulgar arts, comedy being a kind of a vulgar art form. Especially the way he practiced it. Yeah, which is the way, yeah, he was very vulgar, <laughs> particularly in the end. But when he talked about it, his own arc of his career and his creations, it actually took on a form from his early days where he was the class clown as a child and doing goofy things and things like that, and then finding his own voice. And then once he went solo, in 1962, he was much of, much more of the jester, and the reason the jester being, of course, financed by the king to entertain the king, and, and, and the highest paid person. And then he broke away from that. This was a critically important time around 1970, and became a poet because he his love of words, which he got from his mostly from his mother and father, believe it or not, and his his influences, including the late great Moritz Saul and Lenny Bruce was able to allow himself to break free from that and focus in specifically on language and the use of language and to disseminate that and then to find the joke. And then he says, and he talks about this really well, and I don't talk about it because it's his thing is that he would say that if you find, if you're laughing at someone, that's when you are most yourself. That's when you're not necessarily your guard is down, but that's where you're open for a suggestion. So at that moment, as a siren goes by here in Toronto, one of many is where you can insert a bit of philosophy or a moment of, to make people think. 
and it was an evolution in his career that I think is self-evident for some people, but I, I, I don't think it was that simple. And what's beautiful about him as an artist for me is the fact that he recognized that and he worked on it and he developed that kind of arc of his career. Not every artist can actually say that. There's only a handful of really good artists in, in the world of art or music whose careers kind of starts in one place and finishes in another. And you see either, you see success, you see failure, you see, but most importantly, you see growth. Mm-hmm. Right. right. It happens with writers, for sure. It also happens with, with artists such as Picasso comes to mind, who started as a child, that kind of thing, who didn't settle for a lot of different things. And he kept working his entire life going through different periods and experimenting and trying different things and in music too. So there's always, and you can pick pretty much any musician, really. Um, any the classical musicians are pretty straightforward, but in pop music, I think of, in fact, uh, my wife and I, my wife, Elena, were talking about the versatility of Paul Simon. Yeah. Who was a folk artist, rock and roll artist and folk. And then his first solo records got a reggae team yeah. on it. Yeah. He starts and, out and, like and, as a folk the, artist, really. Hard yeah. Work. And he's a singer songwriter. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, he's discovering music from South Africa. And next thing you know, he's discovering music from Brazil. And one of the deepest, widest song books uh, of any recording artist out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's some artists that sort of or do certain thing like, like Andy Warhol kind of thing, who was doing some really interesting stuff when he was young. And then he locked into his sort of style of painting, but he never really, never really grew from that if you know right. what i mean like it's sort of locked in and said that's a, a warhol i don't need to i'm successful i don't necessarily need to try something else frank zappa was the same way as as a, as a composer someone who was willing to try just about anything because he needed means to express himself and he didn't find any any limitations to that so it was so it is and so it was and and I should point out, because um, I don't think we've mentioned it explicitly, that's your other book yes. is uh, about Frank Zappa. That's mm-hmm. a that's a problem with artists who become, experience commercial success, though, isn't it? That it's, it's very hard for an artist to have commercial success and then say, okay, I'm not going to do that anymore because that's what I've already done and I want to grow and do the next thing. And it takes a certain kind of courage for artists to do that, I think. Absolutely. And, and that kind of courage and that kind of willpower to be willing to change as an artist and not settle for less is really what defines George Carlin as, as an artist, I think. Anybody I talked to, and I spoke to a couple of uh, his editors of his books that were very successful, when he got into print, it was a big deal because he hadn't really even considered writing a book or anything like that. And they, and they said without a doubt that he was really meticulous about every word. And what Occupation Fool, the album does, is that you can feel that bubbling under. It, it's it's, uh-huh. it's, it's mm-hmm. in development. He was 35 years old when the record was released, but it's in development. In other words, he has a train of thought that is focused and funny and informative, as a matter of fact. And people in the audience, when they react to what he's saying in a funny way, I, I, I not only feel that they are entertained, but there is a sense of relief. When you hear someone use the seven words you can't say on television, add three more, and then break those words down into expressions that you hear all the time. And I think that 
by breaking those barriers down. Now, they don't, to anyone today who had never heard, if there's anyone under 40 listening, God bless you. Thank you. It's okay to look up George Carlin on Wikipedia. My niece did (laughs) when I told her I was writing this book and find out more about him. You will appreciate him if you haven't discovered him on TikTok or on um, uh, uh, YouTube uh, or Twitter, because he was all over the place because he became so he was relevant at the time and he's still relevant today. This, this really peaked um, when they uh, overturned Roe versus Wade. Yeah. I, I noticed how many clips just appeared automatically at that time. Cause he, he talked about it because he could actually see what was happening, right? Like he understood what the playbook was for the conservatives and what their end goal was, was to turn that over. And, and they did and succeed. They, sadly, they did succeed. As a result, I, sort of, I guess that certainly um, describes him as a philosopher of sorts. But it, I, I don't know if he was willing to predict the future so much as what he saw in his time. And he saw trends. He was a bright guy. He never finished high school, really. And, he, and his first politics were actually quite conservative. He learned over time that there were alternative points of view. And I talk about that in the book in more detail is that he started reading more progressive and left leaning political things and magazines and things like that and became a sort of a self-educated person. Well, I didn't know. And and you pointed out that, that he didn't vote, Mm. which I I thought was interesting because that is one of my principles is uh, I insist on voting because I want to support democracy, and and I think if we don't vote, then um, then we're not supporting democracy. But he had a very compelling argument for why he didn't vote, which is that you know he was orbiting outside our solar system. He didn't want to be a part of it. And correct me if I'm wrong. He didn't feel like he could comment meaningfully on our politics if he supported one of them. So he he wanted to be. Um, Impartial. Impartial. Yeah, he wanted to be impartial. So then he could pick on everybody equally. That's interesting. I've heard some journalists say that too. And I, I, I'm always, I'm with you, Joe. I'm kind of, I'm very uncomfortable when people don't vote because exercising that right is really important to propagating it. So you have to have really well-reasoned arguments for why you don't. And I've heard some journalists say that they don't like to vote for that very reason. I feel like I need to be an outside observer. I have to be impartial. I have to be neutral. I can't really take a side, but I'm also still uncomfortable with it because the fact is we all have sides. Like we take sides where we're not objective creatures. We're subjective creatures. So it's just such an interesting idea that you would not do that so that you can just have free reign in terms of what you want to say. Yeah. So, so, so Mark, what did, what did Adrian Arsenal tell you back in the day then regarding that? Well, I can't remember what she said. I don't think I've ever heard <laughs> her say anything about that. So I, I would definitely not say anything there, but, uh, and she was probably still developing her ideas at that point. Cause indeed she had just graduated. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, uh, consideration. I still cast a ballot for all the good it does. But at the same time, I think you're, you're onto something there, Joe. I think there's that he in a way became ultra cynical about the process, because if you do a deep dive into your own, you know, 
humanity, which he did in so many different ways. And you start really taking a hard look at the way the world operates or the way your country, in his case, the way the United States operates, not just around the world. And you start with a microscope going through it all. You begin to see trends. Now, you're quite right. He felt that he was on the earth cloud outside of the universe, and he decided that was a good location for him. He was so that he could really observe, but he he did it for a number of reasons, none the least of which is that he felt that it gave him like a certain creativity yeah. and freedom to yeah. be critical of all of these things. So yes, yeah. he stopped voting. I think the last election was 1980. He stopped voting. He says, you know, so he says, wait a minute. And he would make a joke out of it and say, well, yeah, I've stopped voting. So that gives me a right to complain because if you vote, you don't have a right to complain <laughs> because that's what you voted for, even if you voted against it. But the notion of distancing yourself from the mainstream, I think, is probably the, the, the kind of world in which comedians actually exist. They have to actually uh, do a deep dive internally, personally, and then peer out to see what it looks like through their own veil, if you like, or point of view. You need a point of view. If you're going to do comedy and stand-up comedy, you need a strong, principled point of view. Now, it could be... It could have a political edge to it, but it seems to me that the, the, the most successful comedians are the ones that are kind of apolitical, per se. I think it's a bit easier for comedians to not have to have a political agenda. Yes. But can I jump back? Because I just want to say that that bit of sophistry there, which is Carlin, which is you don't have a right to complain if if you vote, is a great inversion. It's a great ironic inversion of what's normally said, right? Like normally people say, well, if you don't vote, you have no right to complain because you're not participating in the system. Whereas what he's saying is obviously, if you participate in the system, you have no right to complain because you're part of it. That's right. You're, you're part of the problem or at least supporting the existing uh, political system and economic system. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about Carlin. I, I mean, I, I love his ironic use of language like my favorite one of my favorite bits and i i sorry i can't tell you what album it's from but it's the it's funny how my shit is stuff but your stuff is shit yeah. you know <laughs> it's such a That's great right. ironic yes. play with language is it's fabulous yeah that that particular endearing piece was something that that's from his 1981 kind of comeback album mm-hmm. actually because he kind of bottomed out after the success of all of these albums, including Occupation Fools, that he was a serious cokehead. Yeah. And it was ruining his life and it was ruining his work and he had to clean himself out. And, and somehow he was able to stop that part of it. He was still smoked weed. He was started smoking like marijuana when he was like 14. Didn't really stop that. But when he, he came back in 1981 with A Place for My Stuff, and I, I like that record too, is that he wanted to write a bit about that. And and in the only way you can write about stuff, and he uses the word 23 times, which breaks the, the rule of three rule in traditional mm-hmm. comedy, was this kind of, it gave him that when he was drawing out, as it were, in 79, 80, 81, he took a look inside and he talked about how he had had a heart attack and stuff like that. So he had his health to worry about, but his second heart attack, actually. <laughs> And yes. he, um, he had, yeah, the fourth one killed him actually. Finally, finally got it. But the, um, the notion of, of looking at the micro world, the little things, that was part of his, his genre, if you like, the big picture. 
the, the, the little world, the micro world, what you got here in the fridge, what you're doing with your stuff, what you're wearing and clothing and stuff, how you're feeling, what's coming out of your nose, all of those things, the micro world, and then words, language, the use of language and how we communicate and stuff like that. And so that particular track and that particular piece, a place for my stuff is a really good opportunity. It, 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 reintroduced him to a whole new generation of artists like Margaret Cho and people like that in 1980, 81. If you hadn't heard of Carlin before 1980, and you may have only heard of him, you heard him again in a big way on A Place for My Stuff. And that's a great record. And it's also a good uh, HBO special. I can't remember the name of the one that he did because he did, you know, 14 of them or whatever. And my favorite piece on that was the fussy eater piece. So he's at home, he brings you back home and I'm a fussy eater. What's a big pain in the ass, you know? And so that moment was something that reintroduced him to a whole new crowd. And as a result, there's a generation that just loves his stuff from 1980 on or that middle period or middle to late period. And at this point, yeah, that's still poetry to me. That's still under the poetry kind mm. of angle. And then he becomes more of a philosopher when he gets out of that and starts talking about the larger issues of oh, political inspired and all that kind of stuff, particularly after, uh, after 9-11. That's when it really started to send, he started to send stuff home then. But you know, the, the big thing for me, like, yes, he was a poet and a philosopher and he made very pointed commentary and all sorts of fascinating things and made you look at things in a different way. But the thing that really drew me to Carlin, when I first encountered him at the uh, age of 12, when uh, one of my friends uh, brought the cassette tape uh, and we played it in my my father's car. Ah, which album? I don't remember which one it was. All I remember was the sketch was the seven dirty words you can't say on television. And he was freaking funny. <laughs> you know that was the main thing yeah. for me about Carlin. I laughed my ass off, and that is yeah. probably one of the few comedy sketches that I can quote, apart from Monty Python, to this day. Oh yeah, yeah. Carlin is one of my favorite comedians, and he is one of the most vulgar, profane <laughs> comedians out there. And I had forgotten just how profane he was until I listened to his his last act which he apparently he recorded at the age of 70 months before he died and listening to it. And it is yeah. great. Uh, I think it's, you know, in the era when you said that he's, he's, he's the philosopher, but he's also incredibly funny. And I was surprised at just how profane he was during that. Yeah. Profanity is a rather interesting thing. And, and it's amazing how far we've come in, you know, in 1974, those seven words plus the three extra words, are still, I guess, heavy words to hear when you hear them, but now you hear them everywhere. Yeah. Yet they still, in many cases, retain much of their impact, if you like. And, <laughs> and that's the interesting thing about cursing. It still has an impact, even on, on, on most TV shows. Yeah. But yeah, because they, they have, they still have a lot of power. And the reason so much of our culture war right now is around words is because they're important and they they're meaningful and carlin understood that at a really basic level yes he did and and as i said earlier to to free an american public to, into using those words or at least 
using street language as we use it. I grew up in Scarborough, so none of this came as a surprise to me. But the the notion of, of still planting the right F-bomb somewhere yeah. is much more effective than you might think. Mm-hmm. And that's how we understood it. It was, it was like it was like a kind of a percussion thing. It was like a sledgehammer effect yeah. to use that word. By breaking that kind of language down, it, you can't help but wake up and take notice. And it, it becomes to experience his albums, which you can over and over again, and then experience his HBO specials. And if you watch them enough, and I certainly did, you, I start uh, understanding and, and, and appreciating the, the masterful sequence of his words. Okay. It wasn't just improvised. He worked on these pieces and he learned them mm-hmm. and he delivered them the same way because he was crafting the words and crafting a kind of a, an ongoing argument, whatever that argument happened to be. And that was pure genius for me to, to, to read them, you know, in his books, which came out later. And a lot of his stuff was reproduced in print. And of course, all I hear is his voice when I read them. There's some absolutely beautiful sequences of words that have no profanity at all, where he takes uh, one of his pieces, uh, I forget the name of it, but it was in in his middle special uh, with an interview with John uh, Stewart. He was celebrating 40 years, but he does a fresh new piece at the top of it on the HBO special. And all he strings together are television infomercial slogans and phrases. Money back guarantee. Oh, I've seen that, yes. You know, that yeah, kind no, of thing. And it goes on. pretty impressive. Um, this is, yeah, it's, it's an impressive thing. You know, colors are standing by. And here's a free gift. It's our way of saying thank you. And going on and on and on and stringing all this together. And it's beautiful in and of itself. And then at the end, he does uh, I'm a Man, which is from his last special he launches out. I just want to start this right off. And he couldn't wait to get it off his chest where he says, and he uses all of the sort of contemporary cliches from 2008 and just puts it in a nutshell. And it's like, this is a man who crafted his words. And a lot of comedians, I think, really appreciate that craft and working at it. So there's a handful of comedians today that are like that, where they are sitting down and they're writing all of this material. And it's not simple joke telling anymore. It, we're now becoming, we're going from, as this scholar I saw, who was brilliant, talked about the era and the the evolution of stand-up comedy going from the belly to the brain. Mm-hmm. And this notion of yeah, gut, guttural laughing and, and laughing at people's falling down has become much more intellectual. And it was Mort Saul that sort of started that trend and maybe a little Shelley Berman in there. And John, Jonathan Winters, these, these kind of artists who were taking language or doing comedy in a much more imaginative way and feeling that freedom. I'm thinking of... Uh... Hannah Gadsby from Australia, ah, who one of her most recent specials was exactly that. It was extremely funny, but it was extremely well written and constructed, and all towards a certain point. So it was a, definitely a step up. Definitely, and if you pay attention and and key into what's being said, it's not only f- uh, funny; it's profound. And I think that this, but it also creates a certain degree of misunderstanding. Dave Chappelle has received a lot of heat for some of the things he said. But if you watch any of his specials, if anybody who pays attention to what he's doing here, he's very, very subtle. And he's very good at how he 
presents his material, and it's very, very thoughtful. Now, I'm not suggesting that Chappelle is influenced by Carlin, but he is someone who considers his words mm-hmm. and puts them all together mm-hmm. into a routine that is funny, but it's very subtle and nuanced. It's so nuanced, it's ridiculous. So for a stand-up comedian today, I, you know, how far can you go? How better can you be with, with the competition being as it was? Can you learn something from Carlin? Yes, work at it. Work at it. But now here's a question for you. Yes. Are the ideas, and is that sort of construction, is it more important than the humor? (laughs) Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that it's a means to an end. In the end, you want to make people laugh, right? Like Lenny Bruce had... Uh, some kind of a formula of his own where you had to keep people laughing every 15 or 20 seconds. Carlin recognized that. You got to keep them laughing. Every every 20 seconds, you need to throw in a joke, you know, mm-hmm. to keep them engaged. So you, because what happens is, and you got to be careful with it, uh, they become kind of rants. Now, Lewis Black is like the king of all rants. He's a very funny guy. Huge uh, influence uh, was George Carlin for him because it allowed him to do what he does. And but if he if if you don't dig where Lewis Black is coming from his community you won't you won't like him mm-hmm. because you think he's just ranting all the time and he's full of anger and angst and stuff like that and he uses the f bomb regularly in order to make his point and um, you have to be careful with that so it's not for everyone really many people enjoy Jerry Seinfeld for that reason and Jerry's great Jerry was inspired by George Carlin because he's and. One of his favorite comedians, George's, uh, George Carlin's favorite comedians, was Jerry Seinfeld. He liked Louis Black as well. He also liked comedians who could take the microcosm or the micro world and then really just exploit it for everything it's worth. And that's the Jerry Seinfeld where he just goes right in and does a deep dive. And he's very, very funny. But it's mostly observational stuff and whatnot. And it's just, it, is it possible to be profound and funny at the same time. Yes. If you're conscious of the process of what you're, what you're trying to achieve and going for a laugh, ultimately that's what a comedian wants to hear. Laughter is, is, is the reaction that you want bottom line. Cause if you're not getting that, if you're not getting laughs, you would rather, you know, you may have to take up some other occupation. <laughs> yeah. You're not a comedian. You're not a comedian. If you're not getting laughs, that's true. Hmm. John, any final thoughts on uh, on the, the the man and the album that you brought to us today? George Carlin will never disappoint you. George Carlin will speak to you one on one. Occupation Fool is one of my personal favorite albums, and uh, if you if you get Class Clown, you certainly should get this one as the follow up. His books are plenty, and we sort of scratch the surface of his HBO specials. But if you're looking for an artist or looking to watch an artist work and change his style and to come up with something fresh every time and not take his audience for granted and not take himself for granted as an artist. George Carlin is your guy. And if you, if you want to, you can start at the end of his life and work your way back, or you can start at the beginning with Burns and Carlin, if you want in his early material and work forward. Uh, If you jump in in the middle, uh, you can do that too, but then you should start probably with AM and FM because that was the transitional album for you. So my, my final thought would be, if in doubt, read my new book. <laughs> and I will tell you all about him. Absolutely. Start with the book first. Do, do that first. Start with the book first. 
Or let's put it. I'll, I'll put a, a, a shout out to Judd Apatow, who did the uh, George Carlin's American Dream on HBO last year. When he came up with that idea, which was in uh, the summer of 2020, I believe it was, that gave me the idea to write the book. That's I stole the idea from him, and then I, I uh, sent it off to a, an editor at uh, Applause Books. And we did a, we were able to come up with an agreement, but it was the fact that he was going to do the documentary about him um, that I was able to do the book about him. It's worth and watching. I quite enjoyed it. It, it's, it took, yeah, it's pretty good. It took four nights to watch though. Why is that? Uh, I think some of the personal issues he went through, I found hard. I don't know. I don't know if anyone else is experiencing this right now, but there's just some things that I can't watch at specific times, I can't really explain it. So I'm just listening to myself. And go, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll finish that tomorrow or the day after. So yeah, I ended up watching it, I think over the course of two and a half, three nights, something like that, maybe four. And I really enjoyed it. And I loved, I mean, some of the, some of the video and it's great. Like there's a, a bit he did when uh, he'd had his second heart attack you probably remember this yep. from the, and he's yep. like making a joke about him and, uh, oh my God, I'm blanking on Richard Pryor. Uh, Richard Pryor. So, like, if you're keeping track, it's Carlin, two heart attacks, Richard Pryor, <laughs> one on fire. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're about equal. One <laughs> <laughs> burning. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Mark, any, uh, any final thoughts then for yeah. you? Uh, no, I just I just love this piece. I love uh, I love talking about this. One of the things that I think is there that you've been talking about, but I just I don't know you that well. But you start off by talking about how much you like music, and I think there's a real musicality to Carlin. Hmm. Uh, and all the best comedians use use rhythm, Absolutely. of course. But to take it to the next level and actually get music in, into into it, I think that's what he does. Well said. I agree. John Corcelli, talking about George Carlin and Occupation Fool. Thank you, John. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Bye. You've been listening to Recreative, a podcast about creativity talking to creative people from every walk of life about the art that inspires them and you're probably wondering how can i support this podcast i am wondering joe how can i support this podcast i mean apart from being on it there's no advertisements in this podcast there's no tip jars there's nothing about like buying us a coffee or anything like that but there is a way that you can support us. And what is that? It's not about supporting us. It's about supporting the people that we're talking to. I think most of the people we've talked to are artists of some description, and they probably have some kind of artistic product that you could buy. And if you enjoyed it, maybe you could review it for them. Oh, yeah. But maybe us too. Yeah, you know what? Us too. It wouldn't hurt. They could buy our books. And how do they find us? Recreative.ca. Don't forget the hyphen. There's a hyphen in there. Re-creative. I took your line. Sorry. Well, because I stole your line. <laughs> so yes, re-creative.ca. Jenks. Oh yeah, you're, that, I stole your line again. <laughs> As well, if you like what you've just heard, you could consider subscribing to the podcast. And leave a comment if you like it. Thanks for listening. Spread the word.